This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Joe Biden's five million illegal aliens are on the verge of replacing you, replacing your jobs, and replacing your kids in school. And coming from all over the world, they're also replacing your culture. And that's not great for America. It's full. It's also the special time in an election season when the true colors of candidates and their affiliated parties are on full display. It's when the GOP's apocalyptic rhetoric and blatant lies pile up like dead leaves on your front lawn. And depending upon which America you live in, real facts may never even factor into how you vote. In that other America, the only elections that count are the ones that they win. Hi, it's me, Mike Lindell, founder of Frank Speech and the only survivor of a van accident on northbound Highway 63. I ain't slept a wink in six to eight months because I'm so worried about our elections and about how wolves can figure out how to open doors. (laughs) What I do know is that we need patriots who can get things done. That's why I'm endorsing three kids in a trench coat for governor of the great state of Wisconsin. Everyone knows a kid can't be governor, but three kids on each other's shoulders in a trench coat. That meets the height requirement and more. There are also desperate pleas for donations. The emails begging you to pledge just $3, which is all well and good, but nothing compared to the untold millions in dark money coming in from undisclosed and nearly impossible to trace sources. In late September, Republicans blocked a Senate bill aimed at combating dark money. No surprise there, since the days of Newt Gingrich, Republicans don't even pretend to be principled or moral. Lies are their stock in trade, and in my opinion, the best way to destroy bullies and their lies is to tell the truth. So let's go. Go, go, go. Go, 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 go. Republicans are hell-bent on blaming Democrats for inflation, for immigration, and crime. They are actively not trying to fix any of these things. They'd have nothing to campaign on if they did. But let's talk about crime anyway. First of all, violent crime is generally worse in Republican-run states. And no matter what they tell you, violent crime is not soaring. In fact, it is declining. Most violent crime is committed by white people, not black people or immigrants, but white people. Right-wing extremist groups are the nation's most significant domestic terrorism threat, according to the FBI. That's a fact. Angry white people who call themselves Christians are now the country's most likely criminals. Watched uh, many of the newscasters uh, talk about that we have a problem in America now with young white males. That problem has always existed. Uh, If you look back through the course of American history, most of the mass murders committed in the United States of America were by angry young white men. There have been American, a million Americans have died in the last, uh, since the 60s till now, and most of them have been behind angry white males. Now, crime did rise in 2020 during the pandemic, which also happened to be Trump's final year in office. But by 2021, crime had stabilized. The only violent crime that has risen is homicide. That's right, murder is up 4%. And the top seven states for murder are all red, starting with Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. 
Alabama, you say? Isn't that Senator Tommy Tuberville's state? Well, you damn fucking right it is. Tuberville, a former football coach and MAGA Trump bootlicker, beat moderate Doug Jones in 2020, and he's been saying and doing stupid shit ever since. But this last Saturday, at a Trump rally in Nevada, speaking to a blindingly white crowd, Tuberville blasted Democrats for being crime enablers who risked destroying the Republic by engaging with black Americans. The Democratic Party, they have a majority. They could stop this crime today. They Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bull They are not owed that. Holy shit, did a God-preaching football coach just racially attack black Americans? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, he did. The same system that exploits black athletes would also be happy to see them back in the cotton fields or in jail. Wasn't it Brett Favre who wanted prisoners to build his ill-gotten stadium in Mississippi? Yeah, yes it was. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And Republicans love to call Democrats out for cancel culture any single time that we call out the truth about anything. But isn't openly flaunting your racism, your anti-Semitism, and misogyny the ultimate in cancel culture? And a word to anyone worried about crime, probably best to move to a blue state. I mean, just to be safe, that is. They will abolish the filibuster, pack the Supreme Court, put left-wing federal bureaucrats in charge of corrupting every election, gut the military, they want to destroy our veterans, loot the treasury, mutilate our children with gender insanity, and turn America into a third world country. And wouldn't you know it, Marjorie Taylor Greene was on hand at the same rally in Nevada as Tuberville Saturday, calling Biden Hitler. And saying other anti-Semitic bullshit not fit to repeat, but good old Marge has moved up in the world. Once a fringe fucking wacko, she's now right there, front and center with the wacko in chief. Anti-Semitism is apparently very popular with the maggots. They've surrendered the border to the Mexican drug cartels. They gave up. What's the correct amount of illegal immigration? Zero. And you know what I say to them? Bring it on. Bring it on. Then Sunday, at a Carrie Lake and Blake Masters rally in Mesa, Arizona, Trump said the country is in a decline, but didn't mention it's because of him. The planet could be on the verge of World War III, the former president said, as he blamed, who else? Biden for failing to keep Russia from invading Ukraine. I mean, like, Biden could have somehow stopped Putin? Well, guess what, Donald? Putin is your fucking friend, so why don't you get him to stop the war? Then Trump went on to talk about how victimized he's been by the whole Mar-a-Lardo stolen document scandal. They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me, because it's mine. They lose documents. They plant documents. 
Let's see, is there a book on nuclear destruction or the building of a nuclear weapon cheaply? Let's put that box, let's put that book in with Trump. No, they plant documents. I mean, they have a terrible reputation. Mumbo jumbo, maybe, but in Trump's speech, that sounds like a confession to me. At another Trump rally last week, he actually said out loud that he still has some boxes, but it's just a few. I mean, he fucking admitted it at a rally, this moron. Now, DOJ, did you get that? Mar-a-Lago is the case that just keeps on giving. So how incriminating is this for Trump? I mean, is this effectively the smoking gun in terms of obstruction charges? This new reported evidence is a game changer. It is as powerful a case of obstruction of justice as you could imagine, right? You have a subpoena calling for these classified documents. Couldn't have been clearer. Then you have videotape of those documents being moved to the former president's personal residence. And now you have a witness seen on that videotape who says he, of course, did that at the at the behest of Donald Trump. When you add to that the representations made that all the documents were produced, what makes this so significant, it is not only such a clear case of obstruction of justice, but it puts Donald Trump at the center of it. Despite Trump wrangling to hold up the show, his various arms of the investigation just keep rolling along. New insider information says Trump wanted to use the documents in a quid pro quo where he'd trade back what he'd stolen if they would scrub any materials from the Russia investigation that implicated him. But even Trump's aides, who make a living kissing his fucking ass, wouldn't go for that scheme. You remember me saying this months ago? Earlier this week, I was on with Ari Melber to discuss my new book, Revenge, and we also talked about the trials and tribulations of Christina Bob, Trump's latest lawyer, to become his victim when she signed a statement regarding the Mar-a-Lago documents that was, whether she knew it or not, a blatant fucking lie. She is in a situation that many people remember you were in, where things that she is allegedly doing as a lawyer going to work um, are boomeranging on her because it is possible or it is alleged that she misled the government knowingly or unknowingly because of what she says the Trump folks were telling her. Your reaction? It's not surprising to me at all. Christina Bob was the new person on the block. Boris Epstein, uh, Corcoran, they took advantage of it. She didn't want to disappoint Trump. And so the fear that they would go back to Donald and say, hey, look, she won't sign the document. We need to get that document back. She did not want to get that type of a phone call from Donald saying, hey, are you with me or not? Remember, he demands loyalty. Yippee! Time for the company loyalty song. Knife goes in, the guts come out. That's what Osaka Seafood Concern is all about. Alex Jones, the guy who claims he is tired of saying I'm sorry, well, he's sorry now, must now pay 965 million. And I'm gonna repeat that, 965 million dollars in damages to the families of the Sandy Hook victims. Bless those families, and I hope that they get some peace. I'm sure they would rather have their children back than any amount of money, but unfortunately, this is the world we live in. How are you feeling today, Alex? I actually feel good, because I get a chance to, for the first time, say what's really going on instead of the corporate media and high-powered law firms manipulating what I actually did. In other news, Tulsi Gabbard has left the Democratic Party, and as far as I say, goodbye and good fucking riddance. 
Cassidy Hutchinson has said that she will work with Fulton County prosecutors in their election fraud case against Trump. That has also ensnared several others in his cabinet, including her former boss, Mark the Moron fucking Meadows. I mean, good times, that's how I see it. And don't forget, Mark, you fucking moron, I warned you. And don't forget to tune in Thursday afternoon to the January 6th hearings. They're promising brand new information. As we like to say in the showbiz, more thrills and chills. I would imagine in the history of the world, nobody's changed their opinion because they got punched in the face. Because it now makes them the victim. So, hug a Nazi. And now for the main event. And now for the main event. We welcome back to our show, our old friend Ellie Honig. Honig is a best-selling author, a CNN senior legal analyst, and a former federal and state prosecutor. You may also know him from his popular podcast, Up Against the Mob and or Cafe Brief. As a New Jersey federal prosecutor, Honig directed major criminal cases against street gangs arms dealers, and even a few corrupt politicians. He was also an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where he successfully prosecuted more than 100 members of La Cosa Nostra, including bosses and other high-ranking members of the Gambino and Genovese organized crime families. And now, Honig leverages all that prosecutorial experience to keep the public informed and as fodder for his latest book, due out soon, entitled Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. Interested? I am. More importantly, let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Ellie. First of all, let me just say congratulations, because I understand that you've been nominated for an Emmy for your CNN special about the Adolf Eichmann trial. So on behalf of all of those people who have family that like my father and his entire family, excellent work. So let me ask you this then for my listeners, where and when can we see it? So thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, it's available on the Internet anywhere. We aired it a bunch of times on CNN. Christiane Amanpour was really, as she put it, our godmother on this project. We, she played the whole thing on her show. It's about 14 minutes long. If you just Google CNN Eichmann trial, Ellie Honig, the video will, the, will pop up. Um, it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, the response that I've heard from so many people who had relatives uh, who lost family members, parents, siblings, um, has been overwhelming. And I, too, we talk about in the piece how my grandmother and grandfather were survivors, but they lost their entire families. And I should say, Michael, in the piece, what's so, what, I, what I think really made it so interesting is I interviewed the prosecutor and the investigator from the 1961 Eichmann trial. Both of them were in their mid earlier mid-90s at the time. In fact, the prosecutor, Gabriel Bach, has died since we did the interview. Um, and so really got to record that piece of history um, it was we were nominated. We did not win the Emmy for the for the category, I should say, but it was uh, more than enough of an honor to be nominated. Dayenu, as our people say, would be yes. it was enough to be nominated. Yes, Dayenu is right. You know, it's interesting yeah. because you say that um, your family, most of them were lost, you know, during this time period. My father thought the same thing until I was watching Schindler's List. And uh-huh. at the very end you know, when they scroll through the names of the Schindler survivors, yeah, I saw a name that rang familiar. 
and I brought it to my dad's attention. And he goes, well, that's my grandma's brother, um, oh my meaning God. his mom's, meaning yeah. his uncle. And um, through that, we were also able to find other people who had survived that my dad wow. had no idea had survived. You, so it's really quite it's really quite interesting. You found your uncle through this? Well, he was he was now deceased, but we found oh, his relatives still, yeah. and we found uh, his you know grandchildren and so on. So yeah, wow. and that's remarkable. It is truly remarkable. All right, so yeah. let me then Good. let's get down into what the the real nitty gritty. What's going on here? Would you do me and my listeners the honor, and will you break down for us all of the Trump legal strategy? I mean, if in fact that there actually is one in the yeah in the (laughs) Mar-a-Lardo stolen documents case, right? I thought you were going to ask me to. What's that? I thought you were going to ask me to break down all the Trump legal issues going on right now, but you're you're looking for his strategy. I got you. Yes. What do you? What are the legal arguments that you believe that his team is using, and how viable are any of them? Well, they've been scattershot. They've been all over the map. They've been at times internally self-contradictory, and at other times simply implausible. Um, but I will get around to sort of what I see as the major obstacle prosecutors are facing in that case. I mean, look, we've heard everything from he declassified documents, which we know, first of all, even if you are a believer in the broadest view of executive power, that the president has unfettered authority to declassify, you have to actually do it when you're in office. You can't do it later. So that one's going nowhere. And by the way, it doesn't really much matter if he declassified because the crimes that DOJ listed to get the search warrant Three crimes there have nothing to do with declassification. Arguably, one of them does, but two of them certainly do not. Um, So that's one. Um, Look, the whole planting argument to me was ridiculous because it took Trump about an hour or a couple hours after the search to say things have been planted. I mean, the very easy response to that is, how would you know? You don't even know what they're claiming to have at this point. Um, I think the the ultimately the the. Uh, most important issue for prosecutors to wade through is knowledge and intent. Did Trump know those documents were there? Did he have some sense of what was in them? And did he have intent to break the law? But, you know, we are seeing routine journalistic scoops seemingly every couple of days that go right to those issues. I mean, the most recent one, Michael, came from, I think, the Washington Post a few days ago, saying that Trump packed those boxes himself the ones that they sent back the first batch and that Trump asked one of his lawyers, Alex Cannon, I'm interested if you know him, Michael, but asked Alex Cannon to certify that this was all the documents. And Cannon said, I can't do that. I actually heard David Schoen, who has represented Trump on CNN earlier today, say, I wouldn't trust Alex Cannon as far as I could throw him, essentially. So I found that interesting. I don't know if you know this guy or not. I I don't. In fact, I was under the impression that it was Christina Bob who had sent off the letter on Trump's behalf well, to government right. claiming that all of the documents have been returned. Right. Two different two different lawyers doing two different things here. So the 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 new reporting re- regarding to Alex Cannon. So this refers to when Trump first sent a batch of documents to the archives. This is in January. Mm-hmm. Trump at that point wanted uh, this Alex Cannon guy to say, that's everything. Cannon said, I can't do that. Maybe he said it's not true. Maybe he said, I don't know, but he said, I can't do that. Then when DOJ gets involved, they subpoena Trump. Trump turns over more documents. And then the lawyer, I guess, reportedly, Christina Bob, writes the certification saying this is this is everything. This is all. And then, of course, the third step is they do a search warrant. Still not all. And they they pull out another however many boxes of documents. But the whole thing is just so bizarre. 
You may have seen also Indeed. in our attorney general here in New York, Tish James's 220-page lawsuit against Trump, there was a request for financial documents. Mm-hmm. And they fought it, and they lost. And so the Trump group appealed, and they lost it again. Then they tried to take it up to the Supreme Court, and they wouldn't yeah. take it. Somehow, during this raid, there's a box of documents that would have been responsive to that subpoena. So not only was he hiding the documents, but he refused to turn them over despite the fact that there was a subpoena. I mean, not that one has to do with the other. It's just it's just a pattern. It's his MO. He will give what he wants. He doesn't care about subpoenas, doesn't care about the law, doesn't care about what's right or what's wrong. Um, he just wants what he wants. And he has he's unwilling to bend. Well, I think we can see that in, in the progression here. I mean, you know, it's fair to even ask, why was DOJ so patient with him, so solicitous of him? I mean, they knew he had these documents for many, many months, over a year, I think, when you add it all up. Um, and yes, he, Trump and his team collectively, tw- three times really, withheld documents and then somebody, and then tried to falsely tell archives or DOJ, now you've got everything two times. And that then that led ultimately to DOJ just basically saying, enough of this crap, we're coming in on a search warrant. So I think the conduct in this case that we can see bears that out. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, yesterday Politico came out with a, you know, with, with an article. And I thought that there was a paragraph in there that was truly interesting. The Author writes, such a move would make it easier for Trump to continue to pursue claims that those documents, some of which are marked top secret or with even more restrictive classifications, should not be in the hands of Justice Department investigators because they are subject to executive privilege because Trump declassified them before leaving office or for other reasons. And again, that's the judge that you would just uh the lawyer that you were just referring to. That's, right. that's the statement. What I find amazing is that somebody is willing to put a statement like that down when there's at least a half a dozen lies that are in here. Donald Trump, even assuming he wanted to declassify the top secret or then the more restrictive documents— Cannot just, he cannot just declassify them by thinking it. In right. fact, even if he wanted to do it, there is a process because of the restrictive nature of those documents. But they don't believe that that's even, it's, that's even relevant because he has executive privilege. This is sort of the same stupidity that Alina Haba keeps, you know, preaching with every single case. He has absolute immunity. He has full executive privilege. This isn't a president that we're talking about. This is not a presidential executive privilege to declassify stolen documents that he shouldn't have in the first place. This would be the actions of a dictator, of a monarch, of a despot. Not of a president. Well, clear, clearly, he, of course, we agree he cannot declassify retroactively. And, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, who, who would know better about this than you, Michael? But the position that Trump's lawyers end up in so frequently, and you know this, there is a 
strict ethical prohibition on lawyers. While you can be aggressive for your client, you can be creative, you can make zealous arguments, you cannot lie to a court. And so we're seeing this pattern now of various lawyers in Trump's orbit who are refusing to go on record in courts or certainly to investigators and say the things that Trump is saying publicly. I mean, the, the example with this Alex Cannon guy is, is the most recent one. But before that, we had his own lawyers in the Mar-a-Lago litigation sort of conspicuously tap dancing <laughs> around Trump's claim that he had declassified. They have not said that in the papers. They've sort of gone into lawyer mode and maybe he did or if he did. Uh, and certainly with, with respect to Trump's claim that documents were were planted. And the judge, the special master, I should say, called Trump on both of those things. He said to the legal team, I'm going to need you to commit by, I think it was last Friday. Yep. Yes or no. Are you claiming these things or not? But then the judge on the case, Eileen Cannon, no relation, I think, to Alex Cannon, said, no, special master, you're, ex you're overstepping your authority here. I didn't need you to resolve those issues. I just need you to review these documents for privileges. So, but, but you're seeing this dance again and again where Trump is going on Truth Social or saying publicly, here's, here's how it happened. And his lawyers are going, mm, we can't quite say that. I mean, every time you see that to the general audience out there, every time you see that, your antenna should go up. Yeah, it should. In fact, the lawyers made possibly one of the dumbest arguments that I, that I could possibly even imagine somebody saying. They write, in sum, the government has attempted to criminalize a document management dispute and now vehemently objects to a transparent process that provides much-needed oversight. I don't even know where to begin with an asinine statement like that. You cannot, you cannot be in possession of top secret, or even higher classification documents. Keep them at Mar-a-Lago. And when this orange-crusted moron literally goes to these rallies and he starts talking about Hillary Clinton, she, she deleted 33,000 emails, right? I had them in a secure facility that was guarded by some really strong people. I mean, he's talking about Secret Service. I mean, it is... It is unfathomable that this man can utter such stupidity and yet the crowd fucking applauds i mean is this so, what we're going to be dealing with come november that whatever this asshole says no matter what no matter how ridiculous no matter how illegal eh, that's okay it's just donald so this is the this is the traditional time in every Michael Cohen podcast where I distance myself from your rhetoric, <laughs> but I understand. But let me let me let me cut to to a point that I think you're making that that I, that I agree with, which is Trump's legal team has a bad habit, a self destructive habit of taking an argument, sometimes not a ridiculous argument, and mucking it up with ridiculous overstatement. For example, this is a document storage dispute. At some other point, they compared the whole thing to an overdue library book. I mean, facially ridiculous, laughable things. But but sometimes if you dig, there actually is a nugget of common sense in what they're seeking. They, they screw it up in the way they present it. But I'll give you an example. The request for the special master, they have messed that up eight ways to Sunday. What they should have argued and what I think they were maybe trying to argue through all the bluster and, and succeeded to some extent was, look, they seized, the FBI seized a whole bunch of documents out of my client's private home. Um, FBI can and will go through those documents, no doubt. 
Um, but there may be items in there that are attorney-client privilege or maybe executive privilege, and we don't exactly trust DOJ to do that themselves. And so all we're asking for here, Your Honor, is let's get a third party involved to make sure that our privileges are properly protected. I'm not saying, again, I'm playing the role here of Donald Trump's lawyer, I'm not saying he gets possession of those documents back. I'm not saying they belong to him. They, they stay with archives, fine. But if they're privileged, they can't be used against him. And important to note, DOJ has conceded in this litigation that they seized somewhere in the range of 500 pages of potentially or likely attorney client materials. And they've conceded that some of those, a small number, but I think two of those documents actually made it through wrongly made it through DOJ's own internal filter wall, whatever you want to call it and got over to the investigative team. So there is an argument that Trump sometimes taking the temperature down or saying, making your argument in a plain spoken way is much more effective advocacy than vastly overstepping and just saying it's a library book dispute. So they they keep on doing that. Maybe that's a result of having the client they have, but it's not helping their cause. No. And it's Donald Trump and his lawyers that ended up picking the special master, Raymond Deary. Yeah. Right. And now they're saying that, well, we don't want him to look at the documents and we don't want DOJ to have. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I'll tell you where Donald Trump is clever in this area. He knows that people, especially right now, have no faith in the Department of Justice. They just don't. Um, I certainly don't. Now, you know, you and I have actually spoken both privately and on this podcast as well about, for example, the Southern District of New York and my, you know, continued assertion that the system is really broken and some within the system are corrupt. You know, I have a new book that's coming out called Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics, where I turn around and I call them out in the book. There's absolutely nothing held back here. They are corrupt. Now, Berman then just released his book, you know, after sitting on this information about being pressured by the attorney general, Bill Barr, to whitewash, you know, Trump from my case. And, you know, it's it's, I wouldn't even spend two cents to read that shit. He never should have been sitting on that. In fact, I almost call it a violation of my Brady rights. But, you know, they wanted to whitewash it from my case as either Donald J. Trump or as individual number one, you know, which they did. Originally, the, the paper was supposed to be like 40-some-odd pages. It was redacted down to 20. So his assertion that he held the line, I don't buy. Do you finally agree, or at least somewhat, with what I've been saying all along about there are bad actors within the Department of Justice, specifically, you know, the Southern District of New York? Well, I think we agree to a certain extent. I mean, we certainly agree on Bill Barr, God knows. You know, I wrote my book about him. Um, I have, you know, my first question for Jeffrey Berman, by the way, is I thought you were recused from this case, Jeffrey. Um, right, yeah. Michael? I mean, right. he he claimed he was, you know, I know it's a it's a conflict of interest. I'm recused. And he did what appeared to be the right thing by recusing himself. Yet now he says he has chapter and verse on this. I haven't read the book either, but. Um, aren't you supposed to respect a recusal? And if you recuse because of conflict of interest and ethics purposes, how do you now have all the, all the scoop on this? He's not a journalist. He's not a reporter. I don't think he did reporting. So um, I have questions about that. I mean, the thing that I think we we disagree on is I think your fundamental thesis is that Trump and others below him targeted you for prosecution to nail you 
as an act of revenge. But but the way I've always looked at it is the prosecution of you, Michael Cohen, was really bad for Trump because of all those individual one. And, you know, were they going to indict you? Were they going to name you as a name him as a CC one co-conspirator in your case? So if, if, if I'm Donald Trump, the prosecution of Michael Cohen is really bad for me. If I'm Donald Trump and I had my way, no one ever would have known you existed. So unless I think we disagree you, on you're that. Don, right. Unless you're Donald Trump and you have a very warped sense of reality and you think that I am so loyal to you that I'm willing to allow his improper behavior, his dirty deeds right. to destroy my family, my well, family name. Well, he did think, think that at first, right? That's, Until, that, that he did. Yeah. And yeah. that's why that's where the target really came from. Uh, I'm not yeah. saying that he is... The only one, but he is the one that got this thing started. That's certainly for sure. So let me then step off of that. And let's go back to Trump's yeah. lawyers again, right? Because yeah. um, we see that some of Trump's lawyers, like um, Christina Bob, have now hired lawyers of their own, right? <laughs> it goes with the acronym MAGA, right? Make attorneys get attorneys. Now, some aren't following his instructions, like refusing to lie to the National Archives. Can you tell me what you think is happening with the Trump team? And also, how exposed are these people? Could some of yeah. them end up being indicted, even sent to jail for covering up for Trump? Well, lawyers, you know, do have certain protections and certain privileges, but it's important to keep in mind that those privileges yield if if the conversations or communications relate to criminality, relate to ongoing criminality. Um, and I think if lawyers were asked to lie for Trump intentionally or to mislead investigators or to engage in other conduct that could have been obstruction um, and they, they went along with it, then they should be lawyering up. I, I don't think we know quite enough yet. I'm not going to sit here and boldly predict that any of the Trump lawyers will be indicted. But I think the fact that they've some of them have gone and gotten themselves lawyers um, tells you something. Um, it's a date. Look, again, you don't need me to tell you it's a dangerous proposition to be one of Trump's lawyers. I mean, if you run through from from you, you know, you're the, I think the only one who, you know, Rudy, who, who, who went have. to jail for it. But Rudy Eastman, Clark, all these guys have been subpoenaed, searched, um, have had to pay for lawyers, have been sued. So um, it is, you know, I'm trying to think of anybody who's been a Trump lawyer of any substance and not at least been subpoenaed or sued. I'm not sure I can think of anybody. I mean, even even the White House lawyers who didn't technically represent Donald J. Trump, Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, Don, Don McGahn, McGahn, they've all yep. been yeah. lit litigation and subpoenas and DOJ subpoenas and congressional subpoenas. So it is a it's a hazardous uh, it's a hazardous occupation. Yes. And. I think what you're referring to is the crime fraud exception rule. The, yeah. the, the reason why that is so dangerous to all of these Trump lawyers, former Trump lawyers and so on, is because the way the DOJ looks at it, any document that they find, they could then turn around and claim that there's a crime somewhere here and use the yeah. crime fraud exception rule um, against them. So let me then move on for a second and ask you this. So Jeannie Thomas is saying that she still believes the big lie. Now, how true do you think that that is? And why is Clarence Thomas still hearing Trump cases like the emergency intervention he's requesting on the Mar-a-Lago case? Why isn't Justice Roberts making him recuse himself? This is what judges are supposed to do if there isn't yeah. corruption. So I believe that Jeannie Thomas still believes that Donald Trump won the election. Um, and I believe that she said that. 
Um, it doesn't surprise me. If you look at her, boy, her texts and emails are very extreme. I mean, the exchanges she has with Mark Meadows, and they're talking about the duty of the King of Kings and the fight of our lifetimes. It's it's, it's out there stuff. Um, with respect to whether Clarence Thomas, her husband, should recuse, I mean, she says we didn't we didn't talk about anything. Apparently, she told the January sixth committee. But but even if that's true, how do you prove my, it? My, how do you prove belief, that they didn't? I, you can't prove it either way. I mean, right? You can't. You know. No, unless so there's, a, there's so not a bug it, in their so house. Wouldn't you, so wouldn't you say that the honorable thing to do, right. the judicial the judicial thing to do would be to recuse yourself so you get rid exactly. of any potential hypotheticals? So that's exactly where I'm going. And, and I think Tr- Clarence Thomas should have been recusing himself again, removing himself, similar to what we just talked about with Jeffrey Berman. Because yes. even if there's no actual conflict, even if we take Jenny Thomas's word that they never discussed anything – it still looks horrible. Any reasonable common sense human being is going to go, wait a second. This justice's wife was out there at the rally. She's texting Mark Meadows. She's trying to pressure state legislators. And he's ruling on January 6th related cases, which he already has. He should recuse himself. Absolutely. And was also the Arguably, only dissenting Mar-a-Lago opinion. Mar-a-Lago cases is a little different because it doesn't relate. You know, Ginny Thomas wasn't involved in Mar-a-Lago or classified documents. But, but he certainly with respect to January 6th cases, he should be. But the catch is... While federal judges do have ethics guidance and and a a rule book about when they should recuse, and this would certainly be covered, for whatever reason, it's not applicable to the justices. It's in their own good faith. And by the way, the justices have recused themselves. Clarence Thomas recused himself many times, including once off a case involving VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, because his son was a student there. Now, that's even more attenuated, I think, than this. The problem is... Nobody can force Clarence, even the chief justice cannot force Clarence Thomas to recuse. You can lobby him or go speak to him as a trusted colleague and prevail upon him. But these folks have life tenure and nobody can force them to recuse from anything. Yeah. And I talk about that in the book, um, in my yeah. book, Revenge. I, I hate any system that gives you a job for life that you cannot be removed under yeah. Unless it's the most extenuating of circumstances, you know. Um, and, yeah, I, I and hate one of my it. one of my favorite comments about that, which I which I think one of a, a viewer or listener wrote into me is when they when they wrote the Constitution seventeen in the seventeen eighties, the average life expectancy was forty something years old, right? right? So now that's a little that's a little stilted because there was high infant mortality rates. But even if you assume the average person who got to maturity lived to be 50 or 55. That's very different from now when people routinely, you know, mid 80s, we have senators and maybe, you know, Joe Biden gets reelected a president in their mid 80s. Um, but but the idea, you know, now there's this race to appoint younger and younger justices. Now you can't even be considered for the Supreme Court as a practical and political matter if you're over 50, 52. And, and you know, Trump put Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, all of them in either their early 50s or late 40s, they're going to be together the next 30 years. And the same now goes with Justice Jackson. She's going to be there for 30, 35, 40 years. So I'm not I, sure this is what anyone ever intended. No, and I don't care what anybody says. There has to be a way within which to correct this because, yep. you know, listen, goes right into my next question to you since we're speaking of the Supreme Court. People, myself, of course, included, are really worried about the Voters' Rights Act being dismantled and all of the cases coming before the court this season that could seriously destabilize our democracy. What cases are you most concerned about? So, first of all, I I guess I should say, and I've written this, I I have 
become I, I generally am an optimistic person when it comes to our institutions, as, as you, you and I differ a little bit. Yeah, I tend oh, to I, trust as, as am I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, I tend to trust our institutions, our levers of power, not not, of course, unquestioningly, but I tend to default that though people who serve in high positions try to do the right thing. I've lost that faith in the Supreme Court. Um, I think, you know, look, they keep lecturing us every week or two. It was just Alito, Justice Alito the other day. We're not. How dare you? We're we're totally legitimate and totally honest. I mean, if that was the case, how would it be so easy to predict where all nine of them come out on every single case? All you do is go, what's the liberal outcome? These three will be here. What's the conservative outcome? These six will be over here. And that goes back to Bush v. Gore. But it's gotten worse and worse. Um, and, and again, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it's caused me to lose faith in the Supreme Court, not not in terms of its legitimacy. It's legitimate in the fact that they were all properly appointed, but in in the notion that they're non-political. I just can't buy that anymore. I think all nine of them are political. When it's oh so utterly predictable, that has to be for a reason. Um, the biggest case that I'm watching this term, and it goes right to the heart of, of your question about voting rights, is, is the independent independent state legislatures case. So the Constitution says that state legislatures get to choose how they run their elections. Um, very broad discretion. And so the question, though, that's always been understood to mean as modified by state courts. So if the state of New Jersey, where I live, uh, the legislature says, we're going to decide who gets our electoral votes by flipping a ceremonial coin at the 50 yard line of Giants Stadium every year. MetLife Stadium, excuse me, MetLife Stadium every year. The New Jersey State Supreme Court could come in and say that's unconstitutional. We're not doing it that way. But the argument that's being made now to the Supreme Court is the state courts can't even do that. So however the legislatures want to appoint their electors or vote for Congress, they can do and nobody can do anything about it. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to sort of do the math on where that could lead, because this is exactly what Donald Trump and Ginny Thomas and others were urging on Republican legislators in Wisconsin, and Arizona, saying you can do whatever you want. And thankfully, we had people like Rusty Bowers, the, the state House speaker, Republican in Arizona, who testified in front of the January 6th committee, who said, not going to do that. No way. In fact, none of them were willing to go along with it. But the Supreme Court, if they rule in this case um, in favor of the state legislatures, um, ca can change that and can basically let state legislatures, Republican or Democrat, appoint their electors and choose their officials however they want, with no review whatsoever. And, and that's going to be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, there, there are two that I know that are coming up uh, relatively soon. You have Moore versus Harper, and then you have um, another case called Merrill uh, versus Milligan. You know, these are both um, cases that involve voting, you know, voting rights and restrictions, yeah. uh, whether it's how they're going to approve gerrymandering or whether or not, it, you know, it could potentially undermine the entire voting right acts, which again, always, and I say that emphatically, always restricts people of color. I don't know why it is that way. You're never going to see the Voting Rights Act in an overturning or inhibiting it or gerrymandering of, of, the, of the city or the state. You never see it as it pertains to disadvantage uh, or disenfranchising white voters. It's always people yeah. of color. Yeah, the results always seem to be the exact same. You're right about that.
right? It's terrible. And I really hope to God that these folks understand that while I understand that these are their certain Southern white Christian coalition values, you're fucking up our democracy, right? You're, you're doing things to this country that set us back a hundred years. I mean, they're also going to be hearing the case of Obergefell for same-sex marriage. Um, that's up on, I believe that's up on the block coming up soon. And we already know where they're going to go with that. They're going to do the same thing that they did to Roe. They're going to turn it over to the states. Well, this it's is- interesting because remember, and, and this will go down to the issue of trust, uh, in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, um, Justice Alito wrote that. And he said, he went out of his way to say, I know, I'm paraphrasing here, I know that people are going to see this opinion and worry that next we're coming for same-sex marriage and other other uh, rights that have been uh, recognized over the last several decades, but we're not. This is different. Don't worry. We shall see. Let's see if they're good for, for their word or if they take it back and, again, with, without really any means of accountability. Unfortunately, as you know, as well as I and all my listeners understand it now, there is no accountability That's the thing. They're appointed. They're appointed for life and you can't get rid of them. Now, you also wrote about the Supreme Court and you referred to it as a publicity tour, right? That the Supreme (laughs) Court judges generally don't make public commentary. Now, at this point, the court's obviously aware that the public thinks that they're basically making shit up as they go along with absolutely no care and taking precedent. They're not even taking precedence into into um into issue. What's the future look like for the court when the public no longer respects their opinions? I don't know how the court gets it back. And and my criticism in that piece is that all of the, not all, but but a majority of these justices, a cross-ideological majority, um, are now celebrities and they're signing book deals. Amy Coney Barrett signed a multi-million dollar book deal within months of becoming a justice. Um, They're doing memoirs. They're, they're, writing these sort of uh, self-aggrandizing books about themselves. They're, they're giving public speeches in which they're attacking the media uh, and, and again, hectoring us, telling us we are above politics because we say we're above politics. And how dare you question us? And it's just this mindset that maybe comes into play when you've been on the bench and everyone just sort of worships you and whatever you say is final because you're a justice. Well, guess what? We don't have to accept that in the real world. I mean, yes, the rulings are the rulings and have to be accepted, of course, and observed. But I don't have to believe that the Supreme Court calls it right down the middle and calls balls and strikes because Samuel Alito tells me. I don't have to believe that the Supreme Court is above politics because Stephen Breyer tells me either. And and there has, there has there's a new ethic and culture in the Supreme Court the last 10, 20 years um, that wasn't there before, where the justices used to live these cloistered lives. They would almost never speak in public outside of their, their, you know, from the bench. And now they're becoming increasingly image conscious and they're making tons of money, some of them off of this. And they're giving these um, sort of aggressive speeches. And I know that these justices are, are used to wagging a finger and maybe their clerks scurry for, for cover. Uh, but it doesn't work that way with the real world. And we don't have to genuflect in front of any of these folks. And, and I don't. And I'm, I've been critical of a lot of them. And I will remain so. I mean, I think I did a count in the article. And I think it was either 5-4 or 6-3 on the Supreme Court in terms of those who had done some sort of book and publicity tour just in the last <laughs> couple of years. Um, look, I think 
I'm not some sort of Luddite. I, I think that the courts actually need to be more open. I think it's good that the Supreme Court now actually does a live cast, an audio live cast of their proceedings. I think all federal courts should allow um, at least audio live casts and probably cameras in the courtroom. But I do think that there is something to be said for, for the sort of time-honored tradition of the reticent judge and justice who isn't out there just uh, you know, d- knocking out segments on TV shows and, 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 and doing books and promotional tours. Well, let's go back to what we were talking about before. They can do whatever they want because yep. there's no repercussion. They can say what they want now. They can do what they want. You know, there was a level of respect that Americans had. I think maybe the whole world had when the president would come out for the, you know, the State of the Union address and they would come yep. out in their black robes and so on. Now you look at them like like the seven dwarfs following, right? Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not even funny anymore. It's out of yep. control. It's not just the Supreme Court. Again, I truly believe that Congress has to figure out how to limit someone's capability of sitting on a court. I don't care how you got there. I mean, take a look at some of these federal court judges. Look at Judge Eileen Cannon. Look at the decisions that she's making. These, as far as I'm concerned, should be grounds for a censor. It should be grounds for removal. They are so clearly off topic when it comes to the law. And I've had some of these judges in my cases as well, where they are Republican-appointed judges. They hate me because I am certainly no fan of their furor. And they will then rule and make decisions that are so illogical, that go against not just public policy, but the law. You know, I have this case where I lost, and the case is um, where I'm suing Trump for legal fees. For the fees, yeah. For the fees. The guy had me meet with several different attorneys in order to go after Stormy Daniels for defamation, and pursuant to the NDA, there were, uh, let's just call them damages. There's a, a very, um, there is damage clause that is extremely, um, extremely high. Um, what, what business did I have of going through it? He asked me to do it. There's emails to that effect that we're going to pay for it, yada, yada, yada. And lo and behold, what happens? I lose the case. How? So How? Because so let me what say, they let were me saying, say let, let me just tell yeah. you, the, the, the determination was that as a result of my actions for Donald Trump, which my actions benefited, it wasn't a benefit to the Trump organization. Therefore, the insurance policy should not stand. Now, right. Donald right. Trump is the Trump organization, and he is the president and CEO. So if hypothetically your boss tells you to do something, and he is the brand, he is the president CEO of his eponymous company, are you not going to do it? And then because right. it's not for the Trump organization, it's specifically for Donald, though it could be argued that the brand has a value of its own, that therefore I'm not entitled to my money back? Now, that, those, are state, that's, those are state judges in those cases, right? That's a federal court judge. 
I apologize. Oh, this who one, is it? This one, who's nah, I apologize. This one is a state court judge. Okay. Yes. So, but but let me to, to your first point on on, on federal judges. I think the first of all, I'm not necessarily on board with, you know, pe- people, if, if they get an opinion that they don't like or don't agree with, immediately jump to this. This judge must be corrupt or should be impeached. Um, look, there are appellate remedies. I mean, Judge Cannon, to take an example, a piece of her ruling was over overturned by the 11th Circuit, a small piece of it, but an important piece of it. Um, and now the rest of it is being appealed and we'll see how that goes. But, you know, I think this the reality here and people may not want to hear this and there may be a little bit of a, you know, blame the messenger, but. There's almost nothing that can be done about life tenure because, and I'll just, I mean, structurally speaking, there are benefits of life tenure, right? In some sense, it's good that you have judges that don't owe anyone anything and aren't auditioning for anything. But I agree with you. Look, if if I was, if we were starting over with a new constitution, I, I would probably vote against life tenure and vote for some more. I mean, what's, you know, 14 year terms, that's right. plenty of time. But the problem is the only way we get there is by amending the constitution which is impossible. We'll never amend the constitution again. I mean, not to be not to be cynical, but we haven't amended it since I think 93 um, or something in that range. And it was some silly thing like Congress can't vote itself a pay raise until the next term. But you need two thirds of the House, two thirds of the Senate and three quarters of the states or so, some impossible threshold. So we're stuck with this life tenure for judges. And it's become one of the most important understandably important obsessions of every administration now. They rush as they should to fill as many vacancies as they can with sometimes, and this I I don't necessarily agree with, with younger and younger and at times unqualified people. I think Judge Cannon was rated not qualified. I I don't want to say exact, but but I don't think she was given the highest rating by the Bar Association. She was quite young. I think she was in her 30s when she was appointed. And there were other judges. There was one out of Kentucky who was rated not qualified, um, and still got through. I think he was 33 years old or something like that because these seats are just worth their weight in gold and they can last 30, 40, 50 years now. Um, but I think the reality is we're just stuck with it. There's really structurally, there's no real way we can change it unless there's a real groundswell. Yeah. Well, you're right about that, unfortunately. So, yeah. What happened then to the internal review that the court was supposedly engaged in to find out? Who leaked Alito's abortion ban huh. opinion, right? I mean, that's just another thing. Did it just go away or is it being kept a secret? I mean, that's look, a great the question. public yeah. has a right to know what happened there. Do you think that they even know how the brief was leaked? Do they know who leaked it? So that, that it's funny because I've forgotten all about that. Um, yeah, gosh. You know, let's remember. So just Chief Justice Roberts was very careful in the way that he structure this. I think he had the Supreme Court's own marshal or court officers do these investigations. He did not ask someone outside to come into those marble halls uh, for reasons that I think we can probably make our assumptions about why. Um, do they have an answer is a good question. Do they know? Um, could an an- My instinct is just from based on my years as a prosecutor and working on investigations, this is knowable. This is not something that would be utterly impossible to find out. Um, but I wonder, I don't know the answer. I don't know whether they know who leaked it. And if they do know, I wonder if that will ever be released or leaked, but it would be fascinating. I mean, uh, my instinct was, it's funny because my first instinct, the moment it happened was, this must be one of the liberal side clerks who's just furious and having essentially a, a temper tantrum and saying, screw you, you, you know, you're going to vote this way. I'm going to warn everybody. But 
then I've sort of, there's also an equally availing or maybe more availing thought of, well, who, but who would stand to gain, right? If it was a liberal, at, at this point, you've got, you've got this sort of five to three with Roberts trying to pull people to this middle position. And really who would stand to gain would be someone on the conservative side who wants to freeze those five votes and make it essentially impossible because then if one of the five ends up going to Roberts's middle position, everyone will go, aha, you justice so-and-so, you were the one who was on the side of, of overturning Roe, but then you you got scared, you changed your mind, you have no backbone and you came over to Roberts. So in a sense, the, the leaking of the opinion froze those five votes. So it wouldn't, at this point, I'm 50-50 on where it came from um, and, and neither outcome would shock me. I, it's guesswork, but I can see the thought process either way. Not that it's okay either way, but I can see the motivation either way. Now, there are still folks saying that the DOJ has been slow to prosecute their January 6th case against the former president and everyone else. And when I say everyone else, I'm not talking about the Oath Keepers or any right. of these insurrectionists like me. They were just peons. They're just, they're the little guy that's easy to get. Right. I'm talking about folks like Eric and Laura Trump. I'm talking about people like Mark Meadows, like, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a bunch of the other, you know, insurrectionist wannabes. It's no secret that they've been behind the January 6th committee every step of the way. But where do you think that they are now? Right. Um, are they waiting yeah. until the election is over to make any moves? I'm talking about the midterms. Or is it just not a priority for them? That their goal is to, I hate to say it, it's almost like molarize, you know, this <laughs> matter, which is just to make it exactly a historical record and yeah. not send it to DOJ, to Merrick Garland for indictment and prosecution. Um, I like that phrase, molarize, because I do see some similarities here. So let, let's start with what we know for sure. We are almost two years out now from January 6th, and, and obviously no one's going to get indicted before the midterm, so we're going to be basically at two years. Not a single person with any meaningful proximity to power to Donald Trump has been indicted. Yes, Oath Keepers, yes, yes, Proud Boys, that's important. Um, I shouldn't be dismissive of those cases. Yes, they've charged over 800 people. Important, necessary, resource intensive, good. But not a single person anywhere near Donald Trump with any known connection to Donald Trump has been indicted for anything. We have that. We know for sure. Two, I agree with you. DOJ has gotten lapped by the January 6th committee, which is inexcusable, by the way. DOJ has far greater investigative and enforcement tools than Congress does. Yet DOJ, and I guess this is fact three, DOJ has expanded the scope of its investigation over the last four to six months where they we are now seeing signs of them subpoenaing or halfway subpoenaing in Mark Meadows' case, um, but, but talking to people like Pat Cipollone, Cassidy Hutchinson, but only after those people have already spoken to the committee. So I think those are three things we know for sure. Nobody in any position of power has been charged. We're almost two years out. DOJ does appear to be expanding its investigation, but only on the heels of January 6th. I think it's already a problem when you look at where we are, just in terms of the calendar. I've, I think I've talked about this with you before, Michael, but let's assume, let's say Merrick Garland does indict Donald Trump or other powerful people in January 2023. When exactly does Merrick Garland think these cases are going to get tried? Because it ain't going to be in 
early 2023 or mid 2023. You are looking best case scenario at late 23, early 24. By that point, Donald Trump may well be in the Republican race. He may well be the Republican front runner or presumptive nominee. And you are making your task in getting a jury of 12 people to, to vote guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You are raising it from very difficult to borderline impossible the longer you wait. I should add, the longer you wait, the more time you take the less you convey to the public a sense of urgency and importance around this. And people mm -hmm. say the Garland apologists, I've heard somebody say, no, no, no. Garland's known for the slow build. That's what he does. No, that is wrong. Right. What is the case Merrick Garland is most most famous for before this? Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City bombing, although his involvement was more as a supervisor than the real the guy driving it on the line level. But still, OK, let's look at Oklahoma City. Was it a slow build? Did he sneak up on us? No. Timothy McVeigh was in custody by the FBI two days. He happened to get arrested on, on a fluke on something else. I think a traf traffic ticket. It was ticket a traffic ticket. Yeah. But two days later. The FBI charged him on a complaint. And you know how long it took from then for Merrick Garland and his team to return an indictment? Three months, three and yeah. change months. Yeah, you know how Here long it took two... you know how long it took Michael Cohen? Forty-eight yeah. hours. All right. Right. Well, that wasn't Garland, but yeah, that, that right. But that, that's actually a good point though, Michael. Right. It's showing when DOJ cares to and is incentivized to act. They can act so quick. And I'm I, I, that's a great example, your case, because I'm really tired of people who say, Oh, cases take time and investigations take time. Tell me about it. I did it for 14 years. You were on the other end of not one of mine, but one of them. You know firsthand, Michael, when DOJ cares, when DOJ thinks it's important, and I would argue January 6th is important, you know firsthand how quickly DOJ is capable of acting. Yet here we are two years out and the Garland myth-making about he's a secretist. Oh, that was the other one. How do we know what he's doing? He's probably doing things in secret. Haha. Ha. As soon as people started testifying in subpoenas, you know, getting subpoenaed, we had it within hours. We had footage of people walking into the building, CNN's breaking. We had Cipollone. I mean, oh, yeah, he's a secret ninja, but but everyone finds out within three hours. So this myth making around Merrick Garland, I, I don't buy it. It's possible he still brings an indictment. We could see that. But as I argued, um, I, I think it's less likely than 50 percent. And I think it's too late. I think he's missed his moment. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you. I mean, what bothers me about this, they did no investigation on their own, the Department of Justice. Yeah. In fact, what they did is they took all of the interviews, all of the documents that they received from the January 6th committee in order to build their case. But we right. have documentary evidence. I I don't understand. You want to you want to turn around. And you want to keep Trump off to the side. Okay, not obviously what I want. Not what I know most of my listeners want. Not what I believe he has coming to him. But what about Meadows? What about those text messages, the emails, the documents, and so on? What about the fact that somebody walked these assholes the day before through right the the Capitol so that they knew exactly where they were going, that they had a map. All right. Well, how about Jeffrey Clark? I mean, how about Jeffrey Clark? DOJ to send a fraudulent letter to Atlanta, to Georgia, saying there's fraud in your state and you ought to have a special session to, to reconvene on your legislators. And we're going to do the same with other states. I mean, and once yeah, again, all, all this does. No one. Yeah. You, you can draw a circle around Donald Trump. No one within that circle has been touched by DOJ. Thus totally far. agreed. Now, the January 6th committee is supposedly coming back soon, and that may actually be. The final hearing. 
What do yeah. you think that they still need after a thousand people? It's like tens of thousands of hours of testimony. In fact, if you had people going one after the other after the other, it's like a year and a half worth of yeah. ongoing, continuous, seven-day-a-week testimony. What do you think that they still need to do to fill in the January 6th picture for the public? I mean, do you think that there are any gaps left? Or do you think that they've already I think it's made a closing argument. I think it's a closing argument. I think it's their chance to sum up. Um, I think I, I was listening to Jamie Raskin, I believe, and he said maybe inadvertently, maybe not, this will be the final hearing. Um, and I also the reporting at the moment is there will not be any live witnesses the way we've seen Cassidy Hutchinson or Rusty Bowers or whoever else testify. Um, I think this is going to be the closing argument. Um, I think this is going to be the the committee's last chance to remind the American public of the work they've done and to sort of pull together all the threads. And I should say this. I think the January 6th committee has done a remarkable job um, with very limited investigative tools. As I said before, they don't have nearly the authority and the capabilities that prosecutors, DOJ, FBI have to investigate. They don't have wiretaps. They can't do search warrants. They can't threaten people with prison to flip them. Um, they have much less uh, less enforceable uh, or less enforced subpoenas. Yet they have lapped DOJ, as you just said, Michael, investigatively. I mean, we have DOJ begging the committee for its information. The committee is like, meh, we'll give it to you when we feel like. Um, they have really taught us in the American public, the January 6th committee, an awful lot about this. I mean, if you think back to the second impeachment, right, those days right after January 6th, we knew the kind of the broad outlines. We all saw the attack on the Capitol and there had been enough public reporting to show that it was centered around and, and sort of inspired by Trump. But there's so much more detail and nuance now, crucial evidence that the January 6th committee has come up with and presented really, again, to their credit in a very effective way. Um, and, and if you, you know, it's hard for Congress to investigate and to be that successful. Think back to after the Mueller report, Jerry Nadler's attempt to investigate in Congress. That was a complete circus that went absolutely nowhere and revealed nothing of substance. So I give the committee a lot. Look, I've criticized the committee in certain respects. I think they went light on their colleagues, you know, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan. They subpoenaed them and those guys blew it off and the committee did nothing about it. There are there are there are criticisms. But by and large, I think this committee has done it, done it not just a, a good job, but a historically important job I agree of bringing the facts out. I agree with you. Now, I want to move on just for a quick second here to the trial of the Oath Keepers, another yeah. group of people who have testified before the January 6th committee as well. We have statements from the heads of the Oath Keepers, who they were dealing with, when, where, why, the Willard Hotel the night before. There are recordings specifying the violence that they were planning for January 6th. I mean, this evidence, I think you have to acknowledge this as a former prosecutor, it's pretty hard to deny, right? But yeah. there's still, but I mean, is there anything yet that directly links the former president or any of his aides to the Oath Keepers, including, for example, Roger Stone, we have that fucking dummy on video. It's not just audio. It's video talking to the heads of the Oath Keepers about violence. You know, one of the things so, that I criticized the January 6th committee on, you don't need a thousand people in order to make this claim. They have gone so far. Yes, from a historical perspective, it is the encyclopedia from A to Z. I get that. Yeah. 
But it's like what I keep saying to the attorney general here in New York or the district attorney. You don't have to kill 10 people to be a murderer. <laughs> Nail his ass on the low-hanging fruit and then just move. Book it. So, Go on. So I agree that the evidence against these Oath Keepers who are on trial now looks very strong from the prosecutor's perspective. You never can tell. But, boy, if you look at that indictment and you look at the evidence they've played, I mean, it's all the Oath Keepers' own words. It's all their own texts and, and encrypted chats and videotapes. That's the best kind of trial because you don't have to ask a jury to believe some cooperator. I mean, there will be cooperating witnesses. But the support from – from there, there's no evidence like texts and emails and 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 uh, you know, encrypted chats, and they have tons of that. So it looks like a very strong case. Um, you hit on one of the big questions. Is there a direct link? I think the most obvious place you would look for that link would be Roger Stone. He's never going to flip. He's never going to be a reliable enough witness to flip. He's shown no interest in flipping. But can you draw a straight line? I mean, we Roger Stone, you're right, has made no secret. If anything, he seems sort of proud of his connections to the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. There's videos of him and Time for the Violence and um, all of that. But then you need to make the connection on the back end. I mean, we know the one thing that I think is interesting that's not been followed up on that I know of and maybe behind closed doors. Um, remember, Cassidy Hutchinson testified that on January 5th, the day before Donald Trump told Mark Meadows, get in touch with Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. And as far as Cassidy Hutchinson knew, Mark Meadows did just that. If I'm prosecuting this case or investigating this case, I would go right to that. And, and you mm -hmm. know, the only way you're going to get there is you're going to you can probably confirm those communications happen through phone records. But only one of the participants can tell you what happened. Um, and, and if you can't flip one of them, then you may be at a dead end. But that link is something that's missing. And I also I, I agree with something else you said, and this this relates back to Merrick Garland. There used to be this phenomenon as prosecutors where there were certain people who just couldn't stop investigating because there's always more. You can always get more. You can always more, 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 more. You can always go from 99.3% to 99.7%. But you have to know when enough's enough. You have to know when you have enough to take a shot. And if you insist on, on locking yourself into every single known universe, thousands and thousands of people, you're never going to bring a case and the inertia is just going to become paralyzing at a certain point. Yeah, and that's what's going on here. Speaking of, speaking about corruption, right? It seems like Bill Barr is sort of off the hook, right? At least for now. He went on this apology tour. I want to ask you if you think that that worked. Has he somehow resurrected his reputation? Or is he just laying low, hoping to weather the Trump storm? You know, because me personally... I don't think that there's a place for him in polite society. I think Bill Barr is a fucking asshole. I think Bill Barr, I, I absolutely do. And if he was in front of me, I'd smack him right in the fucking face. All right. And I would call him a fucking asshole right to his face. I hope I bump into him when I'm in Washington, to be honest with you, in a restaurant or something, because I despise the man. This guy sat there. You, people want to accuse me, oh, you were Donald Trump's lapdog, you were his pit bull, you were his fixer for over a decade. What I did for Trump, I did for him as the president and CEO of a small myopic real estate company in New York. This piece of shit did it as the attorney general for the country of the United States of America, right? And I'm not the only one that he went after, you know? You know, I'm, of course, no fan of Bill Barr's. He was the subject of my first book, Hatchet Man. Um, I think he was dishonest. That he, I call him a liar in the book. Um, and uh, I stand by that. I think he lied to the American public. I think he lied to Congress many times over. I think he was a disingenuous political player. 
Um, it is interesting to watch him try to rehabilitate his line, his, his public image. Um, he, you know, you called it early on an apology tour. I certainly would not call it that. He's never apologized to anyone. If anything, he's doubled down uh, on his nonsense. One of the things that I think is quite revealing, by the way, is Barr always tried to adopt this persona of, oh, I don't care. I'm not, I'm old fashioned. I don't care about my media mentions. This guy is image obsessed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've since seen texts that have come out where he's like, how many retweets am I getting? And now he's like a, a regular, you know, he's virtually a legal analyst for Fox News, although his legal analysis is sorely lacking. Um, Yeah, look, let's not ever lose sight of who Bill Barr is and what Bill Barr did. Bill Barr lied to us about the Mueller report. He single-handedly got Trump through the Mueller report. He, uh, he, he, uh, inserted himself into the Roger Stone and Michael Flynn cases for baldly political purposes and lied about it. He, most importantly, you know, the big, what's Bill Barr's biggest claim to being a, a decent public servant? Well, I stood up to Donald Trump. I stood up and said, there's no evidence of election fraud. Yeah. When did he do that? December, December 1st of 2020. When 17 it was days, 17 and the days thing before that he always, his, right. Yep. The thing that might, that, that Donald, excuse me, the thing that Bill Barr always tries to yada, yada, yada over, to borrow a phrase from Seinfeld, is that for months leading up to the election, he was the number one cheerleader for this lie about election fraud. He lied on NPR so badly that NPR had to run a correction saying, we let the attorney general tell falsehoods on our air. He lied to Wolf Blitzer. He said there was a case involving 1,700 fraudulent ballots in Texas. You go, oh my God, 1,700? It was one, one single fraudulent ballot. And by the way, DOJ had to then issue a crappy walk back where they said, oh, sorry, it was a low level staffer gave us bum info. He testified in Congress about the threat of election fraud. He had no facts to back any of it up. So maybe, you know, the analogy I've used, Michael, is it's the equivalent of if a guy started a campfire, put some of it on a stick, spread it over to a tree. And then when he saw that the campfire was sort of starting to catch on the cabins in the woods, took his beer and threw it on and said, look at me, I'm a hero. I tried to put the fire out because I dumped my beer on it. You know what they call, you know what they call that? Yeah. That's called Munchausen by proxy. Where you, where you make you, someone sick on purpose? That's correct. Or you start a fire so that you could be the hero yeah. and so on. That is the best example of what and who Bill Barr is. He's Munchausen. Yeah. First of all, it looks like he's munching on a lot of shit, like Oreos <laughs> and sn- and all sorts of snacks. He should get out and take Perfect. a fucking walk. But it is Munchausen by proxy. I'm sorry. Keep Keep yeah. going. I'm, I'm not willing to forgive or forget anything Bill Barr did. I, I think... You know, he has even but the, but I guess the bottom line is even he has his limits and Trump found them. But I will say Barr, Barr is smart enough to know, at least was smart enough to know when it was over. Right. In December of 2020, when only the Sidney Powell's and Rudy Giuliani's of the world were still clinging to this wild, desperate notion that Trump would be reinstated. Barr was at least enough, at least smart enough to see it's over and and I'm going to try to save myself and my sort of reputation and be able to write a book and give speeches and, and, and not be shunned. But um, but but I don't I don't see him. As, I, I don't forgive. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, too, believe that he needs to be held accountable. And I think that they need to go back and look at any testimony that he provided to Congress. As far as like I said to you before, nail his ass on a thousand and one violation lying to Congress. I guarantee you yeah. it's there. 
I think the sad reality at this point is is this is pathetic, but it's true. The only consequence for Bill Barr will be my silly little book. Um, I mean, th- what what else has ever happened to Bill Barr of any negative, meaningful negative consequence other than having this kid write a book that exposes him? So I'm glad I did it. I mean, one of my motivations in doing it is I thought it was important that we have in one place a record because, you know, the, the funny thing is, Michael, not, not to get into sort of a, a, you know, pitch mode here, but. Every time someone reads the book, they go, I forgot about that. Like, oh, my gosh, I forgot he lied to us in that. Like, there's so many little lies, um, not little. I mean, important lies. But like, can I'll just give you one example. Like, you'll remember this. So obviously, Bill Barr lied to us in his four page letter after the bill, after the Mueller report came out. And remember, Bill Barr held back the Mueller report from us, from the public for 27 days. And during that time, he went on a PR tour to try to clear Donald Trump. And a few days in, Mueller writes Barr a letter saying, you have misstated the substance, content, and efforts of my investigation. And then a few days after that, or a few weeks after that, Bill Barr goes in front of Congress. And one of the members of Congress asks Bill Barr, I think it was Charlie Crist from Florida. Someone must have, I'm guessing someone must have tapped Charlie Crist on the shoulder and said, by the way, Mueller told Barr that he's pissed off. And he asks Bill Barr, has, that, has, Mueller, has anyone on Mueller's team ever expressed dissatisfaction to you about your letter? And Bill Barr, that liar with a straight face says, no, no. So then the letter comes out a bit after that. And then Bill Barr has to go in front of the Senate. And at that point, Senator Leahy from Vermont says, you lied to us. Charlie Crist asked you if Mueller said that he had any problem with your investigation. You had gotten that letter from Mueller and you said, no, you're a liar. And Barr says, well, no, that's not how I understood the question. And he just gives this utter gibberish, mealy mouth nonsense about how, in his view, the question related to members of Mueller's team. But the letter came from Mueller, who he doesn't consider a member of Mueller's team. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it's just one of those little incidents that we've forgotten because there were so many incidents of malfeasance by Bill Barr. But it, to me, it tells us something about just his character and his fundamental dishonesty. Yeah. And look, uh, Ellie, I could sit and talk to you for hours. I could probably come up with another thousand questions, but we will do it again. <laughs> it's also why I keep telling people, um, you know, mea culpa is growing. We are growing every single episode. We just keep increasing, which is great. I call it the mea That's culpa great. movement. Please, please don't just get out there and vote in the midterms, because if we do, we could put an end to all of this. But grab three, four, five of your friends and make sure that they're going to vote as well. And make sure that they vote for people who have similar values where your attorney general is not out there, you know, being weaponized by the former president of the United States or a future president like a Ron DeSantis, you know, a, a Trump 2.0, so to speak. In order to destroy our democracy, we have to make sure that these people no longer hold the levers of power. Otherwise, what are we doing? Our democracy will be lost. Yeah, listen, I, I, I don't do the political stuff, but but uh, I do agree with you, Michael, that we need people who respect our institutions. Uh, and, and, you know, you see what happens when you have people who view our institutions merely as a means to power. So um, I I think we've had a lesson in that over the last several years. That we have, and I thank you for joining me again. I will definitely be asking you to come back. We have a lot to talk about, unfortunately. So you be well and enjoy, my friend. Always great to talk to you. Have a happy and healthy new year. You too. And now for today's mea culpa. 
Just so you know, there is a Republican running for office right now that isn't just a MAGA, election denier, or QAnon cultists. Though he is all of these things, but this guy is a straight-up woman-hating jerk-off who is downright gleeful about women losing their reproductive rights. Curious who I'm talking about? I'm speaking of New Hampshire Senate nominee Don Bolduc, who defended the overturning of Roe v. Wade, saying that the issue of abortion, and I quote, belongs to the state. It belongs to these gentlemen right here who are state legislators representing you. That is the best way, I think, as a man, that women get the best voice. I mean, what? Republican super PACs are pouring money behind Bolduc. Like they're pouring money into other halfwits like Herschel Walker in Georgia and J.D. Vance in Ohio. After Vance suffered a shellacking during his debate with Democrat Tim Ryan, the money didn't dry up. No, it rolled in. Like being unqualified is the only qualification you need to get paid by the GOP. We featured lots of pivotal races over the last several weeks, but it really saddens me to think that one of these bottom-of-the-barrel fucking losers like Balduck, Walker, and Vance might actually get elected. One contest that everyone has been watching, especially with fascination, is the Senate race in Pennsylvania between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Dr. Oz. Looking at the race objectively, you might ask yourself, who is more qualified, the stroke victim or the snake oil salesman? A super wealthy snake oil salesman who doesn't really even live in the state and who looks more like Eddie fucking Munster than Ted Cruz. But that's all superficial shit. Oz is an asshole, through and through. And so there I said it, handpicked by Trump, because like Walker and Vance, he's a celebrity of sorts. And that's very important to Trump. Celebrity covers for lack of qualification and integrity too. If you've been on TV, Trump likes you. And he likes you even better if you're a fucking asshole. Dr. Oz uses a mocking tone with Fetterman to make him seem weak. But Fetterman is incredibly strong, both in character and in qualifications. There was an excellent article in the New York Magazine entitled The Vulnerability of John Fetterman by Rebecca Traster, which captures the side of this race that most of us probably haven't been tracking, in part because Fetterman hasn't been interviewed in public much, and also because we're not on the ground watching this drama play out. On one side, you've got healthy but horrible Dr. Oz, and on the other, you have Fetterman, a guy who is struggling with words and ideas. Not that he is mentally impaired, but because of how the stroke is still affecting his speech. But he hasn't been hiding a thing. Fetterman has been showing up to town halls and events with his impairment on full display. I mean, it's like he's advertising his condition. And with each passing day, he's getting a little better. And it's Fetterman's symptoms and his struggle that people can relate to. But he's never had trouble connecting with his constituents. People love him. Fetterman is a triple excise guy, but even if he wasn't so big, he'd stand above most average men because his heart is huge. If Fetterman handles his duties as senator as well as he's handled this race, Pennsylvania will be in really good shape. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. 
Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.